Hello and welcome to Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott. I'm Daniel Wild from the Institute of Public Affairs. Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott is your voice. Each week, Tony and I discuss mainstream Australian values, the future of the Australian way of life, family, community and Australian culture. More importantly, we want to hear from you. That is why we have the Tell Tony Abbott segment at the end of each show where you can ask Tony your questions on whatever topic you want. Phone in to the Australian Heartland hotline on 03 9946 4307 to leave your question. You can also go to the website australia.ipa.org.au where you can join the Australian Heartland community and sign up to receive this podcast sent to you each week along with special analysis from the Institute of Public Affairs. Thank you for supporting the Australian way of life and now to this week's episode. Hello, Tony, and g'day to all of our listeners. It's wonderful to be back for another episode of Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott. There's so much to discuss. And finally, finally, we are at the beginning of the end of the lockdowns. The debate about lockdowns and zero COVID elimination is finally shifting, and there is a lot of good news to talk about. Uh, Tony, it's lovely to be with you again. Yes, Daniel, it's good to be with you too. Um... I'm out of hotel quarantine, and as you say, uh, there is a light at the end of the tunnel, finally. It's been a long, dark tunnel, but uh, we do have light at the end with the Prime Minister's determination to ensure that the National Cabinet Plan really is implemented, and the states really do move right away from lockdowns once we get to 70% uh, double vaccination and once we get to 80% double vaccinations, there are no more border closures. So, so look, uh, I feel encouraged. You can argue the toss about how necessary lockdowns ever were, uh, certainly after the initial lockdown. I think you could make a case for saying uh, they've been overused, uh, but certainly uh, we just have to grit our teeth now for the next few weeks, confident that at least in New South Wales, and I suspect elsewhere as well, Uh, Once we get to 70%, we've seen the back of lockdowns. Indeed, it's very good news. And and you mentioned the Prime Minister, uh, Tony, and in a press conference delivered on Monday, uh, Scott Morrison said this, and I quote, These lockdowns, once we reach our goal, that is the vaccination goal, we know on the scientific, medical and economic advice do more harm than good. And we've also seen big business groups and a number of epidemiologists over the last couple of days talk about the problems of lockdowns and that we need to move away from trying to eliminate the virus. Tony, I just want to get your reflections on why you think it may have taken so long for Um, these groups and individuals to reach that conclusion? Early on, there's absolutely no doubt, Daniel, there was a great deal of public anxiety about this this virus. Excuse me. I think when when people saw on their TV screens the problems with the Italian hospital system back in March of last year, uh, there was a a wave of fear and anxiety verging on panic. Um, So I can very much understand uh, that uh, people wanted uh, to be kept safe and they thought lockdowns were the best way of keeping them safe. I think it's been more and more clear as time has gone by that uh, once the vulnerable have been protected, uh, the risks to the rest of the community are relatively modest. And certainly once we've got vaccination levels up to 70% or thereabouts, uh, the risk to the rest of the community are 
really quite low. Um, it's pretty clear that the AstraZeneca and the Pfizer jabs uh, reduce rates of hospitalisation by about 90%, uh, and they perhaps reduce the risk of death even more. So uh, we can be very, very confident that our community is as safe as it can be. The public mood and sentiment has changed towards lockdowns, in part driven by a recognition of all the costs that they are imposing upon us. And amongst those costs that have been the most substantial have been on small business. And some research that we undertook recently at the Institute of Public Affairs estimated that about 540,000 jobs in small and medium enterprise had been destroyed in just 21 days from the end of June into early July, uh, while big businesses added over 13,000 jobs, um, which I think is a very concerning development given the important role that small businesses have to the Australian way of life. Uh, Tony, what does this decline to small business say about the future of Australia? Look, I'm always optimistic about Australia, Daniel. Um, apart from anything else, there's no point being pessimistic because that just makes a bad situation worse. <laughs> Keep calm and carry on. There's <laughs> always got to be our motto, and if you can carry on with a smile, better still. But uh, obviously, it's incredibly sad, tragic even, when you think that uh, those tens of thousands of small businesses uh, that will never reopen those hundreds of thousands of small businesses that have been closed down by government fiat, they represent uh, hundreds of thousands of people's hopes and dreams, uh, often their life savings. They've often put their homes on the line uh, to get those businesses up and running. Uh, And those hopes and dreams will all have been crushed by this. Now, because... We're pretty resilient, and the sort of people who go into small business tend to be uh, pretty tough. Uh, They're the people who are more than most of us prepared to have a go. Most of them will come back, but not all of them will, and uh, and that's the tragedy of all this. Now, we know that uh, almost no one has a magic carpet ride through life, and we have to accept that life will have its downs as well as its ups. But it is sad to see uh, so much um, psychic pain and suffering, so much economic loss, as well as everything else, uh, some of which arguably has been unnecessary and over-the-top actions by government. It has. And I just want to draw you out on that fraction, Tony, if I could, because um, your government pursued many ambitious reforms, whether it was to do with the budget, tax, agriculture, federation. And with any reform agenda for that to succeed, it requires support of the community at large and uh, big business and their associated lobby groups play a very important role in, in public debate. Now, many big business leaders have been in favour of lockdowns um, or have at least been silent on opposing them. And I just wanted to get your insights into the role of big business in public policy in Australia and how you think that has changed over, say, the last two or three decades. That's a good question, Daniel. I think there's 
no doubt that we've seen a lot of woke capitalism in recent times. There are all sorts of possible explanations for this, but I suspect a part of it, at least, is the fact that the union-dominated super funds have uh, such a significant influence over boardrooms these days, given that they form quite a large part of the shareholder base of most public companies in Australia. And uh, when you've got, uh, I guess, shareholders who are constantly wanting to know what you're doing for climate change, constantly uh, wanting to know what you're doing for uh, diversity and so on, uh, that has an impact on the uh, board and it has an impact on the management. Now, let me be the first to say that uh, it is important that we are responsible uh, stewards of the planet. It is important that we try to be fair to everyone uh, and give everyone a fair go. Absolutely, we've got to try to do those things. Um, but whether um, television companies uh, uh, should be focused on reducing their emissions, uh, whether energy companies uh, should be focused on reducing their emissions at least as much as they are delivering affordable and reliable power, well, I think these very much are open questions. They are open questions and you've, I think, identified a very, very significant issue, which is what I would refer to as the oligopolization of the Australian economy and society, if you like, which is it seems that there's a smaller number of bigger players in civil society, in business and in government that are influencing the direction of debate. And we've had a hollowing out of the middle of our society, of of, of civil society, of our churches, of our sporting communities, of, um, as I mentioned, small business. How do we turn that around? What can we do uh, from a policy perspective, from a broader structural perspective, to ensure that middle Australia continues to have a voice over the future of our country? Daniel, a tough question, no easy answers. Uh, um, try to ensure that the forgotten people, as Sir Robert Menzies called them, or the quiet Australians, as Scott Morrison has called them, uh, have their voice uh, and are not forgotten. It's, uh, it's a constant work in progress. And this is why it's so important that the Liberal Party which from its very inception has tried to represent those people, does not get sidetracked by the demands of the boardroom now, or indeed by the demands of, uh, of the ACTU. I mean, uh, in the Forgotten People broadcast, Menzies was absolutely clear uh, that uh, uh, the unions were there uh, to represent organised labour, um, big business, uh, the money power, uh, could always make itself felt. But the artisan, um, the small business person, uh, the shopkeeper, um, uh, the families of middle Australia, these are the people who the Liberal Party has historically represented. And we are always at our best and our strongest uh, when we are close to them and we try as faithfully as we can to respond to their concerns. Now, um, we can't always just do what everyone wants, obviously, uh, but we've got to respond faithfully 
and fearlessly to their concerns and do the right thing by them. Tony, as I mentioned, your government undertook many ambitious reform agendas and quite often were met with opposition in various sections of of our society. And I believe it was in that context that you made this astute observation that I remember very clearly. You said uh, that conservatives are often in government uh, but not in power. And I believe what you meant by that was uh, simply winning government doesn't necessarily guarantee that you're going to be able to enact or implement even those policies and ideals that you took um, to an election. Um, Are you able to share with us what you meant by that and whether you think uh, that that is still the case in Australia? I think it it is an issue. It's a big issue. Um, I think it's uh, absolutely true that uh, um, being in power means being able to make change. Um, but uh, you can have a significant majority in the House of Representatives but uh, not be able to get your legislation through a Senate that's dominated by um, populist crossbenchers. And then, of course, there's uh, the general difficulty of trying to ensure that all the other arms of government, uh, the vast governmental apparatus, uh, is operating in accordance with the will and preferences of the elected and the accountable government. Uh, uh, and that's often far from clear. I can remember, just to take one example from my time, uh, the so-called Safe Schools Program. Now, this was uh, effectively a, a social engineering program dressed up as an anti-bullying program It was uh, put in place and funded by the Gillard government, um, and yet it was actually formally announced uh, by a very junior minister in the Abbott government because this particular person was told by the department that it was uh, all ready to go and it was his job to, to announce it. Now, the person who made the announcement did indicate at the time that this wasn't a program of the Abbott government, it was a program of the previous government. But, but I think it would also be fair to say that had any of us known just how culturally Marxist this program was, it, it, it would have been cut off at the past, so to speak. But this is where um, the apparatus of government is now so vast, um, it's, it's very difficult for ministers um, to be fully on top of all of these ramifications, um, particularly if they're only in their portfolios for a relatively relatively short space of time. What does that say about the state of Australian democracy? To me, that sounds, and you may not be saying this, but to me, what I get from that is uh, that essentially bureaucrats can wait out uh, a minister, that they know that in two or three years' time, in all likelihood, the current minister in whatever portfolio it may be will likely be gone and there'll be someone new uh, in that position and they can simply wait out a minister that they may not approve of. Um, Do you think that that's a fair assessment, Tony? In my experience, the public servants that I dealt with as Prime Minister and as a minister in the Howard government all regarded themselves as professionals and they all saw themselves as 
carrying out as best they could <clears throat> the policy and the programs of the government of the day. That said, there is absolutely no doubt uh, that some public servants uh, privately are not at all necessarily sympathetic uh, with the agenda of the government of the day. And I think there is a tendency on the part of some public servants to think, well, look, uh, we're here forever. Uh, the minister isn't. Uh, so uh, we'll humour the minister if needs be, but essentially we'll get on with doing what we think is best. Now, I think uh, certainly the further to the top of the public service you get, the more determination there is uh, to be impartial and professional in the classic Westminster tradition. <clears throat> but it's a very rare human being who can always resist the personal preference when faced with something which uh, is not to your taste, is not to your liking. Is it the case now that if you're a conservative or somebody who's not happy with the direction of certain issues in our country, that it's simply not going to be enough just to vote every three or four years and expect that um, whatever your preferences are will automatically be enacted, but that perhaps we have to be willing to engage a bit more vigorously in in public debate in order to be able to uh, try and um, win on the issues that are facing the future of our country? There's a lot in that, Daniel. I've often observed that a majority that stays silent does not long remain a majority. And I think uh, mm. this is true. I think too many good people have been too silent for too long. And I think this is one of the reasons why there's been such an avalanche of change uh, in the last few years. So, so I think it is very, very important for people not to think that their civic duty ends uh, the moment they leave the ballot box every three or four years. I think we do have an obligation to speak out for the things we believe in politely, reasonably, um, uh, moderately, um, rationally. I think we do have a duty to speak out for the things that we believe in uh, within our own families, within our workplaces, uh, in all the places we socialise. And if we don't, those who feel more strongly, or at least who express themselves more forcefully, are almost inevitably going to carry the day. I mean, just look at what's happening in Kabul at the moment. I don't believe that the uh, Taliban have prevailed because they had better technology or better arguments uh, than the West um, and our Afghan allies. They've prevailed, uh, for the moment at least, because they believed more strongly. They had a stronger will. They had a deeper faith. Uh, they were prepared to outlast uh, their opposition. And there's a sense in which what that demonstrates is that it's the people who care the most, uh, the people who do the most, who are going to prevail. And they're not necessarily always the best ones. Well, Tony, you mentioned there Afghanistan. And if I could just stick with that uh, topic, um, as Prime Minister, you oversaw Australia's largest troop deployment against ISIS. And given your experience in that area and in foreign affairs more generally, and given what has already happened in Afghanistan, uh, 
I'd be interested in getting your insights and, and assessment of what is the best approach that the West can take going forward. Yeah. It's a bit like the Irishman asked the way to Dublin. I wouldn't start from here. Uh, look, uh, uh, I think there's absolutely no doubt that uh, uh, the last few weeks have been a humiliation for the West and in particular for the United States. Um, there's no doubt that the West generally and America in particular can come back from humiliations. Uh, uh, the humiliation of Singapore was not the end of British power. Uh, the humiliation of Saigon certainly was not the end of the American century. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, this is a humiliation. And the challenge uh, for all of us who believe in liberal pluralist democracy is uh, to ensure that we recover from this, um, that it doesn't become one of those humiliations that breeds a generation of uh, defeatism. Um, that's the challenge. Now, now, I don't think this uh, shows that there's anything wrong with Australia's American alliance. I think it just shows that uh, we need to redouble our efforts to ensure that there is a real steel in that alliance, real spine in that alliance. And uh, that's going to mean in the months and years ahead, Australia being prepared to do more uh, to demonstrate to our American partners that uh, we are pulling our weight. We are doing our bit uh, just to try to stand up for liberal pluralist democracy in our part of the world. I, I took the view uh, with ISIS in Iraq, Daniel, that uh, we would do a very great deal uh, to try to protect the people of Iraq from the Islamist threat. And we would do a very great deal to try to ensure that that was the best country that it could be. But uh, in the end, our role was not to make Iraq a mirror image of Australia. It was to try to ensure that Iraq uh, did not become a place that committed genocide against its own people or permitted terrorism against ours. That was really the height of my ambition for the Iraqi government, at least in the short and medium term. And we as Australians could, could never do more for the Iraqi people than they were prepared to do for themselves. And so they were the two principles, if you like, that guided uh, the Australian government's response to the Islamist threat in Iraq during my time. Well said, Tony. Thank you for that. And with that, I'd like uh, to turn now to our favourite segment, which is the uh, Tell Tony Abbott segment, which is your chance, our listeners, to ask Tony your questions and to join in with us in the discussion about the future of Australia. And Tony, we have uh, two very important and interesting questions today. On the topic of wokeness, I'm going to start with Patrick. Hi, this is Patrick from Ringwood. My question for Tony, uh, it seems all of Australia's big businesses and institutions are becoming woke. My question is, what can we do about it? As I think I alluded to earlier, I think part of the problem is the role of the union-dominated super funds. Now, I'm not saying that that's uh, an issue that can easily be addressed. Uh, if it were me, we certainly wouldn't be lifting the compulsory 
superannuation contributions from 9.5% to 12% because that's just going to put more money into the hands of the uh, union fund managers and uh, going to see uh, even larger shareholdings uh, uh, by them in Australian businesses. So <laughs> I think the first rule of government is um, try not to make a bad situation worse. Um, uh, the political version of the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. And I reckon that 9.5% uh, is um, more than enough to be made to put into super, uh, particularly when it's going to the union-dominated super funds by and large, and I just at the very least hold things there. Okay, and Tony, on to our second question and a bit of a change of pace. This one is about nuclear power. Hi, Tony. This is Maria from Queensland. My question is, isn't it time for Australia to start using nuclear power given it is affordable and reliable? Y yes, it is. Yes, it is. And I note that the uh, government, the Morrison government, has been uh, taking some tentative steps towards that. Um, I do think that what's changed over the last few years is, first, uh, we are more conscious of the fact that nuclear power generation is uh, the one proven means of generating zero emissions baseload power. And second, given the rapidly deteriorating strategic situation, uh, we're very much more conscious of how much uh, better it might be for Australia if we had nuclear-powered submarines uh, uh, rather than conventional-powered ones. So, so I think um, the climate consciousness and awareness of our strategic situation uh, both are, I think, in their own way, diminishing the uh, popular opposition to nuclear power that might have prevailed for a long time. Tony, and with that, uh, thank you for answering our listeners' questions and thank you again for a very interesting and important um, discussion. It's been wonderful discussion and thank you very much again for joining us. Good on you, Daniel. Lovely to be with you and the IPA's friends and supporters. Thank you for listening to Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott and thank you for your support of the Australian way of life. This has been a production of the Institute of Public Affairs. To find out more or to become a member, head to ipa.org.au.